0: Well, John 13 is where we're at this morning. We just finished the first kind of half of John 13 last week, and we looked at Jesus washing the disciples' feet. We looked at Him giving us this lesson of servitude, of humility, of love, of sacrifice. And now the tone of the text changes dramatically, and the focus begins to shift uh, to Judas. The betrayer of Jesus. And this is an extremely poignant passage. It's an extremely tragic passage, yet it's extremely instructive. You know, nothing says Merry Christmas like a message on Judas, but nevertheless, here we are. And I think that there's so much to glean and to learn from this account. So I want us to read it together. Uh, I will remind you that we've already seen Judas in John's gospel several times. Uh, John pointed him out in John chapter number 6 after the feeding of the 5,000. John pointed him out in John chapter 11 after Lazarus is raised from the dead and Mary anoints Jesus' feet with spikenard and, and Judas says we should take this and get money for the poor to give it to them, those sorts of things. And, and we've already seen him in John 13 judas has been all, all through this the first half we covered last week we saw in john 13 too, that supper being ended the devil now having put into the heart of judas simon's son to betray him so john already told us this john told us in verse 11 of chapter 13 for jesus knew who should betray him therefore he said ye are not all clean he knows about judas he, he knows that he's a, a, a dirty dog to some degree and now we're going to pick this up and, and get the meat of the story of judas verse number 18 of john 13 Jesus says, I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. So Jesus has just come off of saying, if you do these things, happy ye if you do them. And he wants to be sure to point out, but hey, there's, there's going to be an exclusion to this. I know there's one here who's going to betray me. He says, lift up his heel. Uh, that was kind of a, a colloquialism of the day for saying that you were, you were uh, mad at someone, you were against someone, you were going to betray someone. It was a physical way of, sh- of showing that uh, you were really displeased with somebody. Uh, verse 19 says, now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass that you may believe that I am he. So he said, I'm telling you up front, it's going to happen. And when it does happen, uh, don't, be, don't be thrown off kilter by it. Just believe that I was he and, and I told you it would happen. Verse 20, Verily I say unto you, He that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me. He that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. So Jesus paints this picture. He's done this all through his gospel that if you receive me, you see the Father. Now he's extending this and he's saying, I'm going to send you. He's getting to the end days. He knows he's going to send his disciples out. I'm going to send you. And when someone is receiving you, when you have the message of Jesus, they're receiving me. And when they're receiving me, they're receiving a relationship with God. So understand that you're an ambassador here, more or less, is what he's telling his disciples. Verse 22, or 21, excuse me when jesus had thus said he was troubled in spirit and testified and said verily verily or truly truly i say unto you that one of you shall betray me now talk about an awkward dinner moment if you thought it was weird at thanksgiving for you know that cousin who always brings up politics and everyone knows he shouldn't because it's just going to go you know completely awry try this one on for size we're having dinner, I'll serve you, I love you, and someone's going to betray me. Then the disciples looked one at another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. We know that this is John, the disciple who's writing this, Jesus' best friend. Simon Peter therefore beckoned unto him, or motioned to him, that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast said unto him, Lord, who is it? So there's this moment where Jesus says, "Someone's going to betray me," and they're all they're all befuddled. They're all what? Who is this? What in the world? Look at you! What What's he talking about? So Simon's kind of a ways off. John's right next to Jesus. So Simon's kind of like John, ask, ask. mentioning to him, Come ask him. So I don't know if John whispered it or if John said it real loud. I'm not sure, but ask you who is it? So Jesus says, verse 26, "He it is to whom I shall give a sop." when I have dipped. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. That's, that's always such a, a, that phrase, the son of Simon, gets me every time. It, it tells you Judas had a dad. Judas was, he wasn't this wormwood sort of creature. He was a guy with a dad and a mom, a, a human. Verse 27. After the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. We know biblically that there are physical beings called humans. Uh, There are spiritual beings called angels. Sometimes angels are good. Sometimes angels are bad. The good angels are generally just referred to as angels. The bad angels are generally referred to as devils. We've invented the word demons, which is is fine. It's a fine word, Uh, but you see that as devils uh, in the scripture. And then there is the most powerful uh, angelic being who is evil, and that is the devil, and you see that the devil enters into him. And many times you see in Scripture that the evil in our world stems from our own heart just because we're, we're, we're bent inward upon ourselves. But we also see that many times it stems from uh, satanic forces. And this, this is very clear. Verse 28. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. That's an amazing verse I'll get back to later. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag, the money bag that is, that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then having received the sop went immediately out and it was night. This morning I want you to see from this text uh, really just a lot about sin. And I do understand uh, the culture that we live in. Every culture has pain points with the Bible. Some cultures—if you live in an honor culture or a shame uh, culture—you don't have a problem with sin, calling you know sin sin, saying that there's wrong, saying there's a punishment for that. You don't struggle with that. If you're in an honor or shame culture, you struggle with grace and forgiveness, and that's a tough pill to swallow. In our culture, grace and forgiveness is is very palatable. We like grace, we like forgiveness, we we like those ideas and those concepts. We struggle with with the concept of sin that there is sin, that sin would be punished, that that there's a problem. But you see so much in this text that I think is so timely for us and and has very little to do with Christmas but is, is an important truth. So I first want you to see this morning from this text just the essence and the enormity of sin. There's this phrase in verse 21 that is so potent, and it says that Jesus after pronouncing that someone was going to betray him and thinking about this truth that one of his friends would betray him, it says that he was troubled in spirit. Now that phrase means more than concerned. It means more than a little bit worried. It gives the idea of internally being torn to pieces. When Jesus began to talk about and to think about that, that his friend would betray him, he doesn't talk about it in a detached way well, the scripture said this would happen. It was bound to happen. I, I knew it all along, whatever. He doesn't talk about it in a fly off the handle way either. How could you? After all I've done for you, he doesn't do either. You find that Jesus is torn up. He's torn up inside. When he looks at the reality that Judas is going to betray him, and it shows us the very essence, the very nature of sin, and the, that the reality of that is that sin is deeply relational. That when you sin, we tend to think of it as breaking like a moral code. Somehow I violated the law and that is true but that does not get to the essence or the real enormity of what sin is. If you think of your sin as you know violating some sort of inanimate object or going against a set of ideals, then really you'll fall short. There's more to it than that. If you lie, lying is wrong, it's not okay, it's a sin. But when you sin, you break a, a law, you break a rule, sure. But who gave the law? Who gave the rule? Who came up with that? There's, there's personhood behind where that, where that law came from. And if you think that you're just breaking a rule and that's it, you won't get the essence of sin. You won't get the enormity of it. The best definition of sin that I've ever come across is this. I'll give it to you. It's in your notes sin is rejecting or ignoring god in the world he created not being or doing what he requires in his law now there may be a better definition out there but that's the best one i've come across we tend to focus on sin as that last part not being or doing what he requires in his law I, I fell short, I didn't, uh, something I did or something I didn't do, I, di- I didn't live up to the rule book sort of thing, but that first part of it is just as important, you see it in Romans and all through the scriptures, that sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world he created, that he has given himself, he has pronounced himself, we know about him, and yet we ignore him and reject him. The best way I could illustrate it is this, let's suppose that there was a young widow, she's 30 years old, she has a son who's three, and her husband dies, now she's a widow, And she begins to raise that boy as best she can. She works two jobs. She tries to put food on the table. She sacrifices. She does her best to teach him. She does her best to teach him kindness, to teach him to be generous, to give to the poor. She teaches him to be honest. She saves enough money to send him to college, in a good college at that. And he gets through college. And after college, he lands a good job. He meets a young lady. They get married. They have a couple kids. And he begins to live the life that mom taught him. I'm going to be kind to people. I'm going to be courteous to people. I'm going to uh, give to the poor and try to be generous with people. I'm going to be honest and I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to have all these scruples in order. But there's one problem. He never sees his mom. He never talks to his mom. She's still living. He never calls her. Doesn't send her Christmas cards. Doesn't take the grandkids over to see them. Doesn't, doesn't text her. Doesn't, has, has almost no communication with mom. And when he's... Re- confronted with the reality that he should pay more attention to his mother his response is well I do enough I do what she taught me I keep the rules I I'm attentive to the poor I I I have technical ethicalness in my life and you would say no 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 you're trampling a relationship that's you're, you're missing something extremely important you can do this and do that and do this and do that but really you're betraying her relationally We would all be offended at that young man, even if he tried to be a good person. And when you sin, you have to understand it's relational in nature. The real core of it is relationship. This is why Jesus could say that all of the law, all the prophets, all these do's and don'ts pointed to the greatest, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And the second just like it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. All of this do it and don't pointed to relationship. And if you miss that, you will, you will, you'll miss what sin really is. When we sin, are we breaking a rule? Yes, but primarily we're trampling on our relationship with God. The sin is grievous in the heart of God. When Judas betrayed Jesus, he broke a law, yeah, but he broke a heart jesus is torn up and if you, if you don't understand that you'll never you'll never respond properly to sin in your life or in, in the life of others in your own life if you don't get this you'll never take sin seriously enough well we all sin we all do it i try i mean i mean there's 92 rules i kept 87 today i'll keep 90 tomorrow you I know mean, I'll, I'll do better next time that's not what the bible says The Bible paints the picture that we sin for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What does that mean? It means that you are not giving God, when you sin, the glory and the honor that is due Him. You are robbing Him of glory. You are violating His glory, and that's a serious thing. It's not just that you broke a rule. If you don't understand this, you'll never see sin properly in the life of other people. You'll never see it as enormously devastating. You'll either look at it and you'll be indifferent and you'll shrug at it. That's a small thing. It's a white lie. No big deal. Or you'll look at it and you'll denounce it and just feel good about yourself. Well, well, I how could they? I would never. And understand the true response is exactly what you see in Jesus. And it communicates to us what sin is at its core. It tore him up. It tore him up on the inside, that Judas was about to betray him. He sees it as enormous, he sees it as as grievous. Secondly, and maybe most importantly though, I want you to see the power of sin in this text. There's a lot that we learn here, but at its core you learn that sin is extremely powerful and in many ways. You see that sin has the power to endure. Something that is so striking to me, and if you're in in the habit of writing notes, I want you to write this phrase down in your notes. Judas had tremendous input. Judas had tremendous input. When you look at the life of Judas, you see a man who spends years with Jesus. He is taught by Jesus. Life is modeled for him by Jesus. He watches Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. He, he hears Jesus. He, he sleeps next to Jesus. He, he's loved by Jesus. Judas had the best small group experience you could have ever wished for. I'm, I'm in a, a small group here at the church. Ours meets on Wednesdays at seven o'clock for about an hour and 15 minutes. We had, a, we had a party at our house Friday, and we laughed, and we had a great time. I laughed till my head hurt and my side hurt, and we had a blast, and, and, and I, I love our group. We pray together. We, we cry together. We, we talk about life. We look at the scriptures. I've loved the, the few months that we've been together. It's kind of a new group. I've loved it. Shameless plug. If you're not in a group, January will be open enrollment. Get in one, but the small group experience that i know and love has to pale in comparison to what what judas knew he's with jesus for three years 12 guys in jesus going through this tremendous input yet this is still in his heart yet this is still there. there there's still sin remaining inside of him Scientists tell us that if there's ever a nuclear holocaust, if we all get ticked at each other and start lobbing our nuclear warheads back and forth and blow each other all up, that pretty much everything will be destroyed except the insects. I'm not a scientist, but apparently insects have like this weird ability to be Spider-Man and like, you know, absorb tremendous amounts of radioactivity and, and it not really affect them, and they can just keep on going. So so if there's ever a nuclear holocaust, pretty much everything's gonna be wiped out except the cockroaches. They're still gonna be running around. When you look at the life of Judas, you find a man who is getting a nuclear blast of love and joy and glory from the life of Jesus himself, from the lips of Jesus himself, from the hands of Jesus himself, yet on full blast with all that tremendous input, the cockroach of his sin is still alive it's still there scurrying about his heart. And every time you think you've uprooted your sin, every time you think you've you, you've you've done it, you've confessed, you're walking away from it, you're fed up with it, it's so egregious, I'm tired of this, why did I even do this in the first place? Like, what do I get out of this? Every time you get there and, and you're done, it's over, how long does it take before it comes back, right? Day, week, month, if you're lucky, And all of a sudden, you don't see it that way anymore. All of a sudden, it's it's, it's a lorny. And all of a sudden, the little cockroach begins to scurry around again, does it not? You find in this man, a man who teaches us, do not underestimate the power of sin. Don't think you're going to remove it by yourself. Don't think that you're going to solve the problem in your own power. You're not. You also find in this man that sin has the power to deceive Write this down. Judas, not just tremendous input, Judas had tremendous output. And most of the time, this is ignored. Jesus says, One of you is going to betray me. Everyone in the room, verse 22 tells us, everyone in the room looks around dumbfounded. They have no idea who it would be. When Jesus says, One of you would betray me, nobody said, I knew it, that dude's been shady all along. I haven't trusted him. I think he's been skimming off the top. Nobody took the bitter herbs and lamb leg and started chucking it at Judas. And said, so, I've been accusing you for months now and Jesus finally confirmed my suspicions. No one did that. No one knew it was Judas. They went out and cast out demons and no one ever came back. It was like, Jesus, we couldn't get Judas's demon out. It just wouldn't happen, we tried our best. No one thought Judas was the guy. Judas is the man with the money bag, the CFO of the group. Likely the organized one, likely the steady one, the dependable one, the one who's entrusted. When you give money to somebody, you just don't give that to anybody. This this is a man that that has tremendous output. The Bible tells us that on multiple occasions, Jesus sends his disciples out to testify of him, to let people know. He sends them out to do miracles or to cast out demons, to do these things. And the Bible tells us that they all did it. It doesn't say 11 of them did, but there was like, you know, there was the slow student in the back of class who never listened very well and just couldn't quite get it together and, and you know, couldn't get a demon out or couldn't do a miracle or couldn't do this. Judas is a man who is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. He, he is not saved. That, that's very clear, but he's been used by the Holy Spirit of God. It's extremely likely that Judas has done more good, more miracles, seen more lives changed than I ever will in my life. This is a man who, there's no suspicion, there's there's no thought that he would be off kilter even after Jesus indicates that it's Judas. It's the one I give the sop to. Here's the sop, Judas. Verse 28 and 29, this is what amazes me about this text. He tells them that, and then he looks at Judas and says, what you gonna do, do it. Get on with it, buddy. Verse 28 says, no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this to him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said, buy those things that we have need of against the feast, so they should go give something to the poor. It's the middle of the night. Verse thirty 32, it's the middle of the night. You're not going shopping in the first century in the middle of the night. You're not. You're not going out to give money to the poor in the middle of the night. People are sleeping, it's Passover. Like, that's not going to happen. But that's the only thing they can come up with. Jesus, I mean, he marks them. And it's still like, it, it's almost as if they didn't hear it. It's almost as if they, they couldn't bring themselves to believe it or betray, what do you mean betray? Maybe he's just gonna do something, small potatoes. Well, they just kind of ignore it and move on. And why is he leaving? I don't, he just said he was gonna go betray him. And, and they, he leaves and they have no idea, they're dumbfounded. Nobody suspected Judas. I dare say that Judas may not have even suspected Judas. We tend to think of him as this heinous villain who was conniving for three years straight and looking for his opportunity but it's not the picture that the Bible paints. Here's a man who signed up, who was on Team Jesus, who wanted to learn, who, who was used by the Holy Spirit of God. And, and even after he betrays him, Matthew tells us that it dawns on him what he's done. And Judas is floored by the reality of what he has done, that he has betrayed innocent blood, and he is, he's, he's weighed down by it. And the money that he's so wanted, he doesn't want anymore, he tries to give it back, and he becomes suicidal how could I do this? What have I done? That's Judas. Here's this man who sin has has crept into his life, yet no one around him sees it. Jesus does, to be sure, but his buddies don't. He probably doesn't even see it in his own heart. Verse 30 tells us that he goes out, it ends with into the night. It's not just a random phrase. I think it's meant to tell us, yeah, it it was night, there was physical darkness, but it's meant to tell us that Judas plunged himself into physical darkness, but he was also being plunged into spiritual darkness. That the, the reality of the landscape surrounding these men was the exact condition of Judas's heart. That something was happening on the inside, yet those around him had no idea. The point being, if you're not careful and I'm not careful, sin can hide in plain sight in your life not just from those around you, but, but from yourself. Don't you find this to be the case? I know I find it to be the case. I know something I've done is wrong, but I am so fast to, to soft pedal it. I'm so fast to excuse it. I'm so fast to categorize it as just breaking a rule and, and have no concept of the relational damage it does between me and the Lord. I'm so fast to try to, to, try to come up with an excuse. I'm not a workaholic, I'm just productive. I'm not an alcoholic, I'm just the life of the party. I'm, I'm not mean and angry and abusive. I have high standards. I'm not a bad parent to my child. I, j- I just want more from them, and I demand more from them. I'm not lustful, I'm not dirty, I have needs that need to be met. I have needs that need to be met, and they're not being met by, by anyone, so I have, I have needs. I'm not stingy and greedy, I'm, I'm a wise steward. I'm trying to take what God has given to me and steward it wisely. I'm not a racist. Just, I mean, just to be honest, those people can't be trusted and we need to be wise as a serpent. We do this junk all the time. I do this junk all the time to look at what is in our life and to deceive ourselves and to tell ourselves that it's not real. When World War II broke out, the Americans and the British were both very, very slow to believe the reports that they were hearing. And they, they, by and large, dismissed the idea that the Germans were actually committing such atrocities on the Jewish people and committing genocide. In the thought process, FDR even admitted this after the fact, that he, he struggled to accept the, the reality that the Germans could do this. And, and the thought process went like this. How could a highly developed civilization who brought us Mozart and Bach commit genocide in this way yeah, maybe primitive people or something but no way they, they know enough there's enough science that there's no way maybe someone else could do it, but not, not the civilized people not us they, they, they feel just like us yet we're capable of all kinds of atrocities there are there are things that lie in our hearts that if you're not careful and, and you and you excuse away and you, the moment you tell yourself you're not capable of doing something you're one step closer to doing it you see this in David, don't you? The man who loves God, writes poetry, serves God. I mean, he, he puts words on a page that move our heart today. That it's, and he's, he's such a guy that's in tune with God, but that same guy murders and betrays and commits adultery and, and, and is lustful and unrepentant and filled with anger. Same guy, but it's in him. And the point is it's not just in them and it's not just in him and it's not just in Judas, it's in us. And we deceive ourselves all too quickly. Merry Christmas, by the way. I told you you'd love this sermon. (laughs) Thirdly, sin has the power to grow. There's this progression in the text. It's so interesting. Verse 2 tells us that Satan put into the heart of Judas to do this. Then verse 27 tells us that Satan entered in. It paints this picture of In the beginning, sin was on the outside, sort of knocking at the door. And the next thing Judas knew, it was inside dominating him. Like a lion that was in the weeds lurking, sin was crouching in the corner, waiting to jump and master. And while it started as just a thought or an idea or or a prodding or greed, wanting money, whatever it was, pretty quickly that came inside and had completely washed over him. And you have to know that every time you think a lustful thought, a a greedy thought, a prideful thought, an angry thought, a violent thought, it gets easier to do that thing. And when you do that thing, it it gets easier to do that thing again. And when you do that thing again, it becomes easier for that thing to completely master and dominate you and to grow. Second Corinthians tells us in no uncertain terms that many times there are ideas that come in to us from outside evil influences. And if we're not careful and you don't cut that off at the pass and you don't take those, those things in the mind and get them out and cast down the imagination and get rid of it, that beware, it, it will come in and dominate you. It paints the picture of sin being an inside job. Something inside of us growing. Haven't you seen this in someone? Perhaps it was someone that you were there when they took their first drink, or maybe you gave them their first drink to take, and now fast forward the tape, they're they're absolutely dominated by that, and they're an alcoholic, and you've watched the progression of, of that grow and begin to master their lives. Perhaps you've seen someone who's bitter and angry. I've seen this so many times. Someone who's bitter and angry, something comes into their life, and at the onset, they can recognize it. They'll say things that are out of anger, that are out of bitterness, and they can almost step outside of themselves. And they'll even mention, I know I shouldn't say that. I know I shouldn't think that. It's just, I'm so hurt or I'm, I'm so messed up or I'm so angry at this. They, they can see the problem in themselves, but give it a few months and let that fester and let that grow and let that not be attended to or dealt with by the Holy Spirit of God. Then all of a sudden they can't even see it in themselves anymore it grows larger and more domineering. And it would, you would think that it would be more pronounced in their own heart and mind. And the people on the outside can see it, but they can't even see it in themselves. It, it's just, it's part and parcel of who they are. But now now they don't just gossip, they are the gossip. Now they're not bitter, they, they are bitter, period. That happens so quickly in your heart and my heart if you're not careful. All of a sudden you're consumed by something that you never thought you would be because it grew and it grew and it grew and finally locked in. J.R.R. R. Tolkien, who wrote a lot of books, including Lord of the Rings, and, and that became a set of movies in, in recent years, and, and whether you're a Tolkien fan or not, it is beside the point. Lord of the Rings was, that in The Hobbit, that, that volume is like 1,500 pages. It's massive. And someone was curious one time, they asked Tolkien, they said, do you ever reread it? Like, you wrote all that, but that would take a long time to reread. You ever reread your stuff, which is a curious question. And Tolkien said, yeah, I do. And, and they said, what? Like, what stands out at you when you read it? And Tolkien said, there's one part in particular that stands out to me, that every time I read it, I'm still gripped and I still cry every time. And if you know, if you know that, that story, you'll get it. If you don't know the story, you'll get it as well. But the part that he mentioned was, uh, there's this, this hobbit who's malformed named Smeagol internally and externally. He's, he's just extremely, uh, twisted and messed up. But he gets befriended by two other hobbits who are kind of good guys, Frodo and Sam. And they're on this journey and, and they take him along. And, and Sam's always doubtful of, of the, of the messed up little hobbit. But Frodo loves him and he befriends him, and he, and, he, and he shoots love into his heart, and you can begin to see uh, in the book and movie the the kind of the shell of Smeagol begin to crack, and you can see him start to open up a bit, and, and it seems as though like he's being transformed to some degree, but there's the seed inside of him that he's always plotting, and he's always lurking. He's always looking for the opportunity to betray and to take the ring from Frodo and to, and to even be violent, and there comes this moment where Frodo's sleeping, and Smeagol's going to act on his impulses, and, he, and he's... And he's He's almost freeze-framed. He's almost weighing out, should I do this or not? And it's as if it's going through his head. I have these impulses to do this, and, and this is wrong, but at the same time, I, I, I want to be a good friend, and, and I want to respond to the love. It's almost as if he's weighing it out, and Sam comes up and and accuses him, and in that moment, it locks in. And he makes the decision, and he becomes violent and angry and hostile and, and, be, and begins to bite and go crazy, and it locks in in that moment and you and you see what is portrayed in in that fiction in that story the reality almost of what happened with judas that this is planted in his heart and it is there but it is not until after he's eaten not until after he served not until after he had the saw that finally locks in and is done that this grew this was not the three-year plan this was something that took over him and i will say this if if you If you have sin in your life, small or large, I shouldn't even say that. They're all large. There's sin in your life. And you've been thinking about making a change. You've been thinking about repenting. It dances to the front of your mind and it goes to the back of your mind. You've been thinking about laying it down. You've been thinking about about trying to kick that habit. Do it. For your own life's sake, if you value your life, don't put it off. Because what makes you think that you will have the ability or, or even the desire to kick that later? If you think that how you feel about your sin right now is how you will feel about it 12 months from now, so I can just keep putting it off, you're crazy. It will grow and that will change and you may not even have the smallest inclination or impulse to kick it later on. So I encourage you, look at your life. Do you see self-pity? Do you see resentment? Do you see anger? Do you see pride? Do you see sexual fantasies? Do you see envy and jealousy and unforgiveness and self-centeredness? And are you tolerating that? And if you are tolerating that, why? Probably because you don't think it'll grow into much. Don't fool yourself. Thirdly, and this is the good news, we see the medicine for sin. So there is this, this... relational component that sin troubles and and should tear us up there is this this power in sin that we can't ignore that judas teaches us but what is the medicine how do we treat this is it willpower is it as simple as just kicking the habit how do we deal with these hidden things in our heart how do we find them and discover them what is it that jesus offers judas And the answer for us is contained in verses 26 and 27. And I want to elaborate on this and help you understand the cultural nuances because we're so far removed from this, we don't even understand what this is saying really. Verse 26, Jesus has has said, you're going to betray me. Uh, Peter says, John, ask him who, who is it? And so Jesus says, here's how you're going to know. Verse 26, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Dipping the sop is like, what is that? Okay, so in in any meal, but especially Passover meal, there were kind of the, the real delicacies of the meal. Maybe it was this especially juicy portion of meat, Uh, In many cases, probably in this instance, it was more of the bread. So the best way to illustrate this is is through my Panera habit. Uh, I go to Panera a couple times a week. I'll eat and I'll work and I like Panera. And one of my favorite things to get there, especially this time of year, is tomato soup. It's one of the simplest things they have. uh, But I'll get tomato soup and I'll get a French baguette with it. I wouldn't even know the word baguette existed if not for Panera. I would just call it a roll or a a third of a loaf or something. Uh, But you get the baguette, okay? My habit and perhaps this is your habit too if you eat a bread bowl or or you do this or you dip your grilled cheese in soup or something. Uh, My habit is to break open the the baguette very gently on the external layer and then I want to kind of run around the external layer and I want to separate the inner bread that's all soft and all warm from the hard shell and then I'll rip up that shell and I'll dip it and I will save that inner all soft, all warm part. How many of you know what I'm talking about, okay? It's like the cream in the Oreo or something. It's, it's the good part, right? That's the sop. It's, it's, I like all the bread. It all tastes good. But that's, that's the real kind of special part. Those two bites are, are what I really savor. And that existed. Like that was a thing. There was there was the portion of the bread that was especially good, or the portion of the land that was especially good, and they would have kind of a, few, a fruit puree that would basically be raisins, dates, and wine kind of mixed together, and you would dip that that sop, that that good part, that delicacy, into that, and then whoever got that was the guest of honor. The host did this. So Jesus is hosting, and whoever got that would be a guest of honor that it communicated, I love you. It communicated your special. It communicated honor. It communicated something highly significant to everyone else in the room. And Jesus says, I'm going to give Judas this. While he knows he's going to betray him. And what you have in this moment is is this really cool mixing of ideas. You have Jesus who sees Judas to the bottom. He knows all about him. Still at the same time, he loves him to the end. Jesus in this moment is saying, Judas, I see you, but I still love you, man. I I still have affection for you. It's not too late, come back. And we're told after that, it locked in. It wasn't until after that happened, perhaps Judas was angry because he was made to feel guilty. Perhaps he doesn't want to lose control. Perhaps he's just greedy. I don't know. But it's in this moment that that Jesus says very clearly and communicates very clearly, this is special. This is part of the reason why the disciples are probably still befuddled, like, you know, he's gonna betray you? No, you just said you loved him, you gave him honor, friendship, like, what in the world? It locks in and Jesus says, What thou doest do quickly? He knows that when Judas goes out, that the clock will start ticking. That it's, it's a matter of a few short hours before those guards come back, before they arrest him, before he's on the cross. He knows this, and, and he says, once he knows it, it's done and it's finalized, and Judas has made up his mind, the devil has entered him. Okay, let's, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. Go ahead. Go into the night. And Judas does. The darkness that Judas deserves and that sin deserves in a few short hours, will fall on Jesus. The darkness of sin, Jesus knows when Judas goes out, will fall on him. And what, Je- what is happening in this story is Jesus essentially offering Judas the medicine of a loving relationship with him. And Judas rejects it. Judas says, no, thank you. I will not swallow that pill. I will not take that medicine. But all the while, Jesus knows that this is going to allow him, Judas's betrayal will allow him to offer the same medicine to the entire world. But he will eventually hang on a cross. And as he hangs on that cross and takes on the sin of the world, he essentially says to all, I see you and you and you and you and you and you and you to the bottom. And I know all about you. And I I know all those skeletons and all that wrong. I know all that shame. I know all that dirt. I know all that. And I'll take that. I still love you. I still offer you friendship. I still, I still offer you relationship. Enter into loving relationship with me. That's the only medicine for sin. If you think that you will get it done, you will, you will get more willpower, you will take a course, you will read a book, you will figure it out, you're wrong. The only medicine to really trump and to really come over your sin is to, is to enter into loving relationship with Jesus, that's it. So this morning, I want you to know two things. I'll be very brief with this, but I want you to know two things. Don't think, number one, don't think that you can overcome your sin on your own. It's, it's not a matter of intellect. It's not a matter of trying harder. If, if you think you're gonna do it on your own, forget it, forget it. It is too deeply rooted. It is too concealed. Nothing less than a regeneration of your heart can get the job done nothing less than what the scriptures call a new birth, nothing less than the relationship with God being restored via the cross of Jesus Christ, nothing less than that. That's the only medicine that will actually get the job done. So don't think you can do it on your own and know that you have to rely on on the power of God and on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to. Secondly, if you're toying with the idea of repenting, don't play with it, do it. If you've been thinking about making a change and you know you need to, do it now. Don't buy into the lie that you will have forever and that you'll feel this way forever and that you can just do it next month and that this won't grow and that this will remain static in your life. You're wrong. Respond now. Do it now. Lay it down now and let his love and and let his light melt away that cold and that darkness in your heart and and let him him actually in to do the work that only he can do. Pray with me. Father, we thank you this morning for, Lord, I'll be honest, a text that I was not super looking forward to preaching at Christmas, but nevertheless, a text that I think instructs us and helps us in profound ways. Father, this morning, I pray that we would understand that when we When we do wrong, we don't just break a rule, but we break hearts. Help us to understand the enormity of what wrong choices can bring. Lord, help us to understand the power of what sin is in our lives. Help us to to understand how, how conniving and deceitful and tricky sin can be. Lord, please help us not to underestimate this. Please help us not to think that we can do this in our own strength and in our own power. Please help us not to think that that this habit will just remain just like this. It'll never grow. It'll never get out of control. I could never do that. I would never do that. Lord, rid us of those thoughts, rid us of that pride, and help us to see that we're no better than Judas. Lord, I pray that we would understand very clearly that the only medicine for this is not trying harder. But as understanding that you and your love and your grace and your friendship and your mercy tell each and every one of us that you know us and you see us. You know every sin we've done. You know every wrong. And you don't run away. But you die. And you extend grace. And you hold out your hand. Jesus, thank you for seeing me to the bottom and loving me to the end. I thank you for the day that I understood the enormity of my sin and confessed and repented and you saved me. I thank you for that joy and that peace and I thank you for the power of the holy spirit to live in victory something that i fall short of i confess lord but something i know is there lord would you help us as husbands and fathers and mothers and wives and children and teenagers and church members and bosses and employees and coworkers and neighbors to to live lives that are in your power and in your spirit May we forever forsake our own self-righteousness and our own self-effort and our own muscle and rely on your energy and your power. Thank you for your cross and your love and for teaching us so much. This morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I do want to ask you a couple of questions just by way of response. I want you to, I just want to talk to you before my final prayer. If you're, if you're saved, if you're in the room and you know I have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. I know I've been born again. I, I know that Jesus is my Savior. I know, and I remember what that was like to, to finally, it all came crashing down what my sin was and that I needed to, to confess it and to turn to Jesus for his forgiveness and I've done that. If you're in the room and you've and you've done that but you're still toying with these pet sins, understand that they're toying with you and understand that you need to literally right now in this moment talk to God and confess it and ask for his help and his power. As best you know how, you need to walk away from it. It is not an understatement to say that that your life and at least the joy of your life depends on that. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I want to talk to you You would say, I'm I'm not entirely sure. I've I've never put my faith in him. I I don't know that my sins are forgiven. Regeneration, I'm not entirely sure what you're talking about. It's very simple. Jesus loves you in spite of your sin and he died for your sin. He was buried and he rose again as a proof of authenticity that this was real. And if you will call out to him and will put your faith and trust in him, he'll save you. He will come into your life. He will change your life and give you the power and the strength to do what you cannot do on your own. If you'd like to call out to him, I'd encourage you right where you sit, just genuinely and sincerely from your heart, right where you sit right now, just just pray to him and say something like this. They're not magic words, but if you'll mean it with your heart and, and say something like this, he'll save you. If you'll just say, Jesus, I believe that you died for me. Save me. I confess that I'm a mess and that I can't change these patterns of disobedience in my life. And Jesus, I need you. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose again. And Jesus, I'm putting my faith in you. I want to live for you from this day forward. That's not a magic script. Those aren't magic words, but if you'll genuinely, sincerely pray something like that, he'll save you right where you sit. Father, we are so grateful for how good you are, for what you teach us in the scriptures. I'm so grateful to just be able to every week get together with people who, who want to hear from you, who want to hear from your word, who want to hear from your spirit. Lord, today I pray that I pray that we'd have real joy in Christmas and real peace in Christmas and real merriment in Christmas, not because of hot chocolate and, and music, but because of what you're producing on the inside. Lord, may we not try to short circuit that. Change us, help us, convict us, move us. We need you, and we tell you that with all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you sing this song with Matt?
1: Here we go. time just the voices as a prayer to the Lord. In my life, Lord, be glorified, be Today. Thank you, church,
0: for being here this morning. I want you to know that I love you and appreciate you. Today's a different day. It's a different setup as far as the musical this evening. The windows are blacked out in the back, and you've got a Judas Christmas sermon. So, uh, But, but I, I pray that it was exactly what the doctor ordered for your heart. Um, looking forward to tonight at 6 for the musical, of course, and looking forward to uh, next Sunday. We'll actually look at kind of this back portion of John 13 where you look at the glory of the cross and the true mark of a disciple that you love one another, uh, which are just awesome, potent theme from John 13. So uh, we'll look at that next week. But uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit. Jesus sat at dinner, and he served his people, his disciples, and he loved them. And then he just, like, switched gears hard and went, when did you going to betray me? So we're just going to switch gears real hard right now. We're going to watch an announcement video, and I'll make you aware of a few things that are coming up uh, here in the near future that you need to be aware of. And after this is done, you'll be dismissed. We'll see in the lobby and shake hands and, uh, and say Merry Christmas to each other there. <laughs>